You've got this. Just a few more feet and you'll be a legend. Standing at the top of the world, you'll be a god. You've been working on this for so long, and now it's finally within your grasp. But it's getting harder to breathe. You strain to fill your lungs, fighting through the sapping cold to keep moving. You're almost there. Just a few more feet. I know it's hard to breathe, but you can do it. The others turned back, but you're stronger. You can keep going. You just have to keep going. I'm your host, Harper Hunt, and this is Cursed Knowledge. Understanding narrative structure is useful. It's nice to know where you are in the story and where the story is going. Am I in Act 1 or Act 2? Has my hero's journey crossed the threshold yet? Have I met my love interest? When you can spot the narrative, it's easy. Just line it up and watch it go. Still, we may know everything there is to know about the structure of narrative, but when we're the main character, we're also pretty good at ignoring it. Our significant other only talks about themselves and never asks us a question. Well, that's not a red flag. That's just them being passionate or opinionated or something. A serial killer is on the loose in my small suburban town. Well, it's time to throw a party and don't worry, I'll go into the dark basement by myself. It's the genre blindness that always gets us in the end. So why do we ignore the warning signs? The red flags waving in our face, screaming, what are you doing, stop? When everything we know about narrative structure and recurring story arcs is telling us to turn back, why do we keep pushing ahead? So what do you know about mountain climbing? Because today we're talking about Mount Everest and why no one should ever climb that death trap. I know you've all heard of Mount Everest. Tallest mountain in the world, blah, blah, blah. I'm not here to bore you to death with basic trivia that you'd answer in a bar. Instead, let's jump into how Mount Everest is super fucking deadly. And what makes it so dangerous? Well, I'm glad you asked. It all comes from a fun mixture of weather, location, and height. So the weather is pretty terrible. The mountain is covered in snow and frequently blocked by severe snowstorms. If you want to attempt to summit, you have a limited window of time. Most people try to go in May. The temperature is warmer and the deadly winds are less severe. But you have to move fast because this balmy weather is a prelude to monsoon season. So you can climb the mountain in that nice period between a blizzard and a monsoon and pray that period is long enough. And even the best climbing time is dangerous. There's no guarantee that a storm won't blow in while you're climbing. And warmer is relative when below zero is the norm. The location isn't great either. Everest sits right on the Nepal-Tibet border. The border literally goes across the summit. Technically, you can attempt to climb Everest from any direction, but that's a really stupid idea. 98% of climbers take either the northeast ridge from Tibet 
or the southeast ridge from Nepal. These two routes are the most well used and are the easiest. And they're still pretty damn difficult. The southeast route typically takes 60 days from start to finish. Oh, the actual Everest part only takes about six days. But first you have to get to base camp, get used to the high altitude pressure, and prepare for the trip. Plus, they have you cross the Kumbu Icefall, where shifting blocks of ice are constantly changing the terrain and opening new holes in the ground. Or maybe a giant ice pillar will fall on you. Dealer's choice. Expedition on this side of Everest average about four deaths every year since 2000. It's considered the harder climb, but it's also faster and you'll spend fewer days at high altitude. The northern route isn't any better. It's perhaps an easier climb, but it takes longer and you'll spend more time at high altitudes. On that side, you have to contend with the three steps. These are three prominent rocky steps near the top of the mountain and are where most people on this side of the mountain die. It's straight up rock climbing so high up you barely have any oxygen. One misstep and you're going down. So now let's talk about the third challenge of Everest, its height. More accurately, the altitude you get when it's that high up. The higher up you go, the harder it is to breathe. There's just less oxygen up there, and that can cause serious problems. When you're low on oxygen, your decision-making skills falter. Your reflexes slow and organs start to shut down. It's a race against the clock to regain oxygen, and it's a race you don't usually win. When mountains are tall enough to reach this altitude, the very top gets a special name, the death zone. I'm not joking, it's actually called the death zone. It's because any extended stay without supplementary oxygen will lead to your death. And of course, guess where the summit of Everest is? That's right, in the fucking death zone. The whole area is so dangerous that as a rule, if you see someone struggling, if you see someone in trouble, you have to leave them. You cannot help them. Attempting to do so will only put you in danger. And if you die in the death zone, you'll stay there. It's too dangerous to bring somebody's body out of the death zone and back down the mountain. That and the bodies are literally frozen to the ground. With no possibility of extraction, the people who died there made the top of Everest their final resting place. Of the 310 people who have died trying to summit Everest, roughly 200 of them never left the mountain. Their bodies now serve as landmarks for the living. So what actually kills you on Everest? Well, the vast majority of all deaths are caused by blunt force trauma, either from falling or being caught in an avalanche. I know the snow looks pretty and soft, but when that snow and ice is rushing down a mountain faster than a car, it hits like a train. In some cases, the bodies are just never found and the climbers simply go missing. Other deaths are often related to altitude sickness. The high altitude and lack of oxygen shuts your body down and makes it impossible to move. From there, hypothermia and total organ failure aren't far off. Now, not all bodies remain on the paths up the mountain. A great number of them are lost to the mountain due to the harsh weather and shifting ice. But those that are on the main routes have gained a level of infamy and serve as a very clear reminder that to climb Everest is to tempt death. Hennelor Schmatz 
was climbing with her husband in 1979. As they approached the summit, they were warned by a descending party to turn back as it was too dangerous to continue. Schmatz was adamant that she would continue, and a radio to base camp indicates that she did eventually reach the summit. Sadly, she would never come down. She became overwhelmed with exhaustion on the descent. The Sherpas accompanying her urged her to continue, but she chose to ignore their device and build camp while still in the death zone. After one of her companions died of hypothermia, she tried to continue her descent, but her body was already shutting down. Her corpse remained on the mountain until high winds eventually pushed her off the side. Perhaps the most famous Everest body lies on the first step on the northern route, where climbers will rest and take shelter near an outcropping of rocks. As they rest, they will see the perfectly preserved remains of a man known as Green Boots. His identity is still unknown, but it's believed he died in 1996. The harsh conditions that took his life also ensured that his body and all his gear were protected from scavengers and natural decay. His bright green boots are a marker for climbers to indicate just how close to the summit they are. And he wasn't the only one to die in that outcropping. In 2006, a man named David Sharp was climbing alone and without supplementary oxygen. He found himself unprepared and eventually took shelter next to green boots. Sharp was likely suffering from altitude sickness and was unable to continue the climb, but he also lacked the strength to return to camp. Because Sharp was climbing alone, he had no one to turn to for help. But that doesn't mean that he was truly alone. There were several other climbing teams on Everest that day, many of which passed Sharp on their way up or down the mountain. Some of the other climbers attempted to provide aid, but they were ultimately forced to keep going or risk their own lives. Sharp died in that cave next to Green Boots. There was, of course, controversy after his death. Many believed more aid should have been given and that the climbers who left him held some responsibility for his death. Sir Edmund Hillary, the first man to ever summit Everest, said in response to the news, I think the whole attitude towards climbing Mount Everest has become rather horrifying. The people just want to get to the top. They don't give a damn for anybody else who may be in distress, and it doesn't impress me at all that they leave someone lying under a rock to die. But the climbers said they did everything they could. Ultimately, at that altitude, it's extremely difficult to keep yourself alive, let alone keep anyone else alive. I'd now like to take a moment and just make sure you know that the majority of the people who died on Everest were Sherpas from Nepal. They're acting as guides for the tourists who came to conquer Everest, putting their lives at risk so that someone else could say they reached the top of the world. I want to remind you because it's easy to focus on the high-profile deaths of famous mountaineers or see media coverage of Western climbers. Reports of tragedies on Everest tend to focus on white tourists and climbing teams. The 1996 Everest disaster has spawned multiple books, from fictionalized retellings to personal memoirs, as well as several films, and they all focus on the lost lives of the American and New Zealand climbers. David Sharp's death caused officials to reevaluate the systems in place on Everest, but the deaths of 16 Sherpas in an avalanche in 2014 only held headlines for a few weeks. Most of the deaths on Everest come from people pushing past reason. They stay up longer than they should. They continue when they should turn back. 
They're desperate to reach the summit, and they've come so close. Surely pushing just a little bit more wouldn't hurt. There's such a short window of opportunity to climb Everest, and by the time climbers near the summit, they've likely been climbing for months. They've been delayed by bad weather, and the final prize is right there. So what if their guides are telling them to go back? They can see the summit! They're not going to go back and wait to do this again. The risks of climbing Everest are well known. The dangers of the climb are very real and very present throughout the weeks the climb takes. The narrative of Everest is one of death. So why are there still so many people trying to climb this mountain? Because there's another narrative that's easier to swallow. The narrative of victory against adversity, of conquering, of glory. Very, very, very few people have ever summited Everest. And doing so instantly makes you special. You defied death and made a journey most people can never even dream of. It's an instant boost to your clout and becomes a title you carry forever. It defines you. You're no longer Todd from accounting. You're Todd, the man who conquered Everest. No one can take that from you. Hey, you know what? You should write a book about your experience. Yeah, there's already like 50 of them, but yours will be different. Oh, I know, start an Instagram documenting the whole process. You'll go viral, I'm sure of it. In a world where it feels like nothing is special and everyone is the same, this is a way to make you matter. Like just about everything else these days that sets you apart, that's a rare and precious commodity. So this is a narrative that people want to be part of their story, too. There's also another reason why people ignore the Everest death trap narrative. And thankfully, this is a much kinder one. It's because they want to help people. Earlier, I said that one of the most important rules in the death zone is that you can't help anyone. Doing so only puts you at risk. But some people ignore this rule. They ignore the narrative of overwhelming death because they won't leave someone to suffer when they can try and help. David Sharp did ultimately die on Everest, but many people risked their own lives to try and save his. They gave up their own resources, including precious oxygen, and made every effort to find a way to save him. The 1996 disaster claimed as many lives as it did because the people leading the expedition went back to help the people who got left behind. Sundari Sherpa was the one to guide Hanalore Schmatz, and he stayed with her body long after she died, even though it cost him most of his fingers and toes to frostbite. People want to help others, and they'll do so even if it means losing their own life, even if it means they'll be ignoring the red flags waving in their face. I hope you learned something new, and remember, the real curse is sharing this information with your friends, family, and unsuspecting co-workers. If you enjoyed this production, like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, tell us some of your most cursed knowledge by joining us on the forums at EpsilonTheory.com.
By the way, Everest actually grows 44 millimeters every year.